Welcome to episode 84, Swiftly Transitioning to Online Therapy, Legally, Ethically, and Efficiently, featuring Dr. Amber Lida by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. We know that right now is a really unusual time and many of you are needing to rapidly transition your in-person practice to telehealth. Uh, Today, we're joined by Dr. Amber Lida. She's a licensed clinical psychologist in both Florida and North Carolina, and her specialization is helping providers ethically and legally deliver online therapy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Amber. Thanks so much for the invitation. So tell us a little bit about you and how you came to have this particular specialization. Well, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I specialize in teaching other mental health providers across the world how to build their own online therapy practice legally and ethically. Uh, I have my own practice that is exclusively online, and I have scoured ethics and all of the state legal issues and even international issues to help create coursework so that folks can get their online therapy practice up and running and know that they're doing it in the right way. Wonderful. Um, Thank you for sharing this information with us. I know many of us are desperate for more information, in fact, including myself. Um, So why don't we kind of launch right into it? Um, So when someone is starting telehealth right now, uh, what do they need to have in place first and foremost? We have a lot of people who are needing to get up and running really quickly. So I think that there are four things that they need to be thinking about. Making sure that they have the appropriate hardware in place, the appropriate software in place, that they've thought through some policies, and that their paperwork is updated to include telehealth practices. So tell us more about the hardware, the policies, the paperwork, and how to get started and and be up and running. Let's talk hardware. This isn't as complicated as it might sound. You literally can use the camera on your laptop. They're high quality. You don't need to go buy anything special. Earphones are very helpful. They improve sound quality, and they also protect your client's privacy if other people are in your home. And then you want to think about what sort of background you have available to you at home. So if you haven't been practicing telehealth, you might not have thought about what does my corner of my room look like? And you want to make sure it's as free from distraction as possible. And also think about in your office, what would you feel comfortable with your clients seeing and make sure that your background at home is a reflection of that as well. What are some um, resources that you recommend certain products that are out there that are pretty standard go-tos? Because for people that have never done this, they don't even know where to start. And so they go into Google and they're like HIPAA compliant software for telehealth. Um, So point us in the right direction. Absolutely. So I guess first, remember to think about You want software that says they're HIPAA compliant, and you want that confirmed by a document called a BAA, which is a business associates agreement. If the company won't provide that, I would be suspicious of their claim that they were HIPAA compliant. So that's just to kind of make sure that you have covered all bases. For video software, I really like Zoom. And keep in mind that each piece of this of software that you can get may have HIPAA compliant and non-compliant versions. So be sure that you choose the compliant version and you'll know that because you'll have a BAA reflected in that. And the BAA is nothing fancy but a contract that the company's already created for you and will hand to you when you ask. We need video and Keep in mind that if you are an insurance-based practice, most insurance companies only consider video to fall under telehealth. They want synchronous connection with your clients. So you'll want to get HIPAA-compliant video. Make sure that your phone is HIPAA-compliant. If you're going to correspond via email, you want to make sure that also is HIPAA-compliant. And if you have a record storage system that's electronic, many of them have a portal that your client can drop paperwork into and that you can receive, which mitigates having to send it electronically in ways that are less secure. And then you'll also need to know how to process payments. And if you work in person, that part can feel a little bit confusing. Uh, So I just want to make sure that you understand that taking payment online is usually HIPAA compliant if you're using a platform like Square Up that offers a BAA, which we'll talk a little bit more about. 
but it's important that you don't have your clients um, receive invoices or receipts without special permissions in your informed consent. And we can talk about that a little more as well. But I just want to put a pin in that because that's one place that I see a lot of practitioners unknowingly putting their clients' protected health information at risk. Okay, thank you. And you bring up another point, which is a HIPAA compliance issue. I want to direct our listeners, we have a couple of different podcast episodes that are specifically about selecting technology like an electronic health record in a way that is HIPAA compliant, and also a few podcast episodes specifically about HIPAA compliance and what that means when selecting technology. Um, So for those of you who are needing to do that, you probably also want to check those out. But Amber, let's come back to you. So let's talk about um, first... Um, for those of the, those people out there who are not HIPAA-covered entities, do they need to be delivering um, video or telehealth on a HIPAA-compliant platform? Absolutely. So there's a really important thing to think about here. If you were to ever get in any sort of trouble, so whether you're a HIPAA-covered entity or not, and I know many clinicians really can't tell whether they are, right? They have trouble discerning that. I think it's important to function as if you are one for a few reasons. Number one, HIPAA has created standards to keep our clients safe. So we're all on the same page about wanting to make sure that we provide safe and secure care for our clients. The next piece is if you were to ever get in any sort of trouble at all and you were investigated, the standard that they'll compare your behavior against is what most clinicians out there in the world are doing. And most clinicians are functioning under HIPAA. So It's not as complicated as it might sound, and I know HIPAA is a scary term for most people, but I would recommend that they check out the podcast that you've done, and it's it's all about client care. So if you can come at it from that perspective, I think it makes it a lot friendlier and easier to take in what the real meaning is behind the requirements. Thank you. I appreciate you clarifying that because some of us are not technically HIPAA covered entities because we don't interface with things like insurance companies. We don't transmit electronic billing. However, as you pointed out, the argument could be made that uh, HIPAA is quickly becoming the quote unquote standard of care, which is kind of a nebulous term. But what you're saying is basically best practice at this point is to work with a HIPAA compliant platform. Absolutely. And doing online care almost always results in PHI being shared electronically. So even if your brick and mortar practice might not put you as a HIPAA covered entity, your online practice likely would. And for those of us that haven't done this and are looking for HIPAA compliance, that's going to cost more money. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what the financial expectations are as we make this transition? Absolutely. As you think about how you're going to set up your software, I would think about whether you value ease or uh, lower expense. So I value ease. So I like all of my stuff coming from one place. My favorite place to get all of the things I need for my practice is a company called iTherapy. They have bundled together my favorite products, which I'll tell you about in case you want to piecemeal them to together. um, And they can give it at a discounted rate. So I don't have to pay as much as I would if I got all of those products separately. But there are also lower cost HIPAA compliant products. And we can go through those as well. So that if you know you're doing this just for a couple weeks or a few months, then you might want to choose those options rather than entering a contract that's a longer lasting or more expensive contract. Okay. Um, So tell us, for people that are looking at this as a temporary solution to the current issue with the pandemic, what would that look like to kind of piecemeal together uh, a set of software products instead of doing a bundled option? So for video, there are three heavy hitters out there. Zoom, and um, Zoom is expensive if you get it on its own. However, if you let the company know that you're a small business, they will often give you a big discount. You can also get Zoom through other providers. So you can get Zoom through a company called VC at a discounted rate, or you can get it through a company called regroup.connect for free. So those might be options to look at. There are some other video software that you can consider as well. Doxy.me, that's D-O-X-Y dot me, is a really popular software. And then if you use an electronic health record system already, like Theranest or Simple Practice, both have the potential to add video onto their product. 
If I had Zoom, I would not be concerned about having backup video. But if I had uh, DoxyMe or I was using the video through Simple Practice or Theranest, I would want a backup option just in case those systems were getting a little overloaded. Got it. Um, speaking of getting overloaded, we have all these people right now that are transitioning to telecommuting in all different industries. What have you seen happening with these larger platforms like Zoom and DoxyMe? And how can providers prepare themselves for that in addition to what you just said, which is have a backup? Timely. It's so timely to be thinking about this because I've had zero problems with Zoom or VC. Both are, are video options. But what I am hearing from people who are using Doxy.me is that the company has not been able to handle the bandwidth of the people signing up. And I think that that's probably because Doxy.me has the reputation as being the free video software and people don't understand that they could also get Zoom for free, really, through regroup.connect. And so Doxy is getting overloaded and it has been a little bit slower. I expect that they'll recover from that, but I don't think any of us were prepared for what was about to happen. And I think that they're probably feeling it right now. Okay. And I want to point out for our listeners, I know Amber is talking about some specific products here. She doesn't have an affiliation or a vested financial interest in any of these and is offering these simply from her experience of some options that we can consider as we start to make this transition. So Amber, you've talked now about software and how to look into programs, what we should be looking for with a BAA and HIPAA compliance. You've talked about hardware and our need for um, microphone uh, in our laptop or our computer to have headphones to improve privacy. I'm sure then we want to take into consideration things like a sound machine outside our door. You brought up the great point of also being mindful of what's behind you in your room, what your clients are going to see, because it's a, a different kind of intimacy. Many of us are working from home now. So we probably have some personal tchotchkes that we might not want our clients to see. Um, so let's talk about now policies and paperwork that we need to have in place to make this transition. So the first thing that I would be thinking about is inclusion and exclusion criteria for the people you're bringing into telehealth. I think many of our providers get a little bit nervous and feel like they don't want to see folks online that are perhaps more acute than the people that they're seeing in their in-person practice. And I just want to challenge that for a moment. Um, if you are seeing someone in your physical practice who is acutely in pain or has some acute risk factors, what we don't want to do is abandon that client out of fear. And so we can adapt your policies to be able to support that client and we can do it legally and ethically. So if that's a fear for you, remember that you have many levels of bosses and one of them is about clinical care. So we want to take the best care of our clients possible. And we'll talk a little bit more about risk management in a moment. In terms of inclusion and exclusion criteria, that might be a little bit different now during this time where we're dealing with a pandemic. But in general, what I think about are silly things like, does this person have strong bandwidth and can they stream video online? So if they can stream Netflix, they can usually stream video. I think about things like level of care. And honestly, the level of care that I can provide online is exactly the same kind of level of care that I can provide in person. I'm doing the same work. I would think more about things like, do they have privacy at home? And if they don't, that's an exclusion criteria. If there are issues around domestic violence, that might be an exclusion criteria if we can't keep them safe and private. The other place that I think about is if there are things clinically that I would pick up in person that I couldn't online. So for example, I don't specialize in substance abuse, but if I did, a lot of times I can pick up cues in sessions that I wouldn't be able to pick up online, even including like the smell of alcohol or something like that. So those sorts of things might be an exclusion criteria, or it might mean adapting your policies so that you have somebody who's kind of boots on the ground, who's also working with that person and you can collaborate on their care. I also think in terms of policies, you want to be thinking about adapting your informed consent thinking about how you talk about sessions to onboard clients into the process in a seamless way and thinking through your emergency response plan. That's very helpful guidance. And as you were talking, I realized there was one thing that we didn't talk about earlier in our consideration of legal and ethical issues, thinking about adolescents or young adults, many of whom right now are returning from school. 
So we might have, uh, we let's say our practice is in California, but we have a client now that had been in California. We've been seeing them. They were going to college and now they're going back home to Texas. What's your advice about what we do when certain states, especially states like California, have previously had very strict guidelines about not being able to provide therapy over state lines? Um, what's your guidance on how we deal with this unique situation right now? Oh, it's so hard. So I would start at the top, and that is to check the state board in any of the states that either you or the client is in. Because A, they're going to have what their base policy is, but many are updating them right now and suspending some of their in-state only requirements so that we're able to help exactly that population so I would check there first, and I link to all of those in um, the webpage that I'm providing to you so that you can have a little bit of a shortcut. They are struggling to respond to phone calls and emails. So really, first start with the website. And then if you can't find the information there, message them. Also, be in communities that are talking about this because they might have gotten information that they can pass on to you rather than all of us having to deluge the board. And usually when I say pass on information, I don't mean like a rumor. I mean, show us the citation so we can make sure that we're covered here. The other piece is your clinical judgment is really important. And if I, and this is my personal bias, if I had to justify that I continued to see a client for case management or clinical consultation while we were dealing with this and they were in another state, I would rather err on the side of keeping my clients safe and meanwhile trying to find somebody else who could support them there in the longer term if we needed that than abandoning my client. So I think you really have to check in about where are your priorities? Are your priorities with your clinical judgment? Are they with your state law? Your professional ethics is about doing no harm in part. So you're having to navigate a lot of hard things. One thing that I like to do, so this is my heavily neurotic way of managing my own anxiety about these situations. I have a worksheet that I've created. I may call it the covering your booty worksheet. And this is what's on it. At the top of the page, I write, what is the question that I'm, I'm struggling with? I write the question out. What does my code of ethics say? I literally copy and paste what my code of ethics says, anything that might be related. What does my state law say? I literally copy and paste that over there. What does my liability insurance say? I copy that. And your liability insurance is an amazing resource to consult with. You usually get at least one free legal consult uh, over the course of the year. Mine has been amazing with helping me sort through difficult issues. Then I write, who have I consulted with about this and what was their take? And then at the end, I write my decision. This is how I'm going to handle this and a date. This is when I'm going to check in about this again. In that way, I will always know that I've thought this through from every possible angle. And if I ever had to defend myself, I can bring this piece of paper and say, I was doing my best. These are the things that I considered as a, I was making my decision. I think that guidance is so important. I really appreciate that you brought that up because then you're also talking about something that is going to serve in your clinical documentation as a justification for your clinical reasoning behind whatever choice you've made because many of us are in gray areas that even the boards don't necessarily know what to do. So we are heavily relying on what I call our clinical fancy hat to make decisions because we don't have the same clarity that we would under normal circumstances. We've been talking about quote unquote online therapy, and we've been talking primarily about video. What happens if they don't have a lot of bandwidth, if a client doesn't, or if we don't, and we need to be doing therapy over the phone? How does that change the equation? That's such a great question. So that would be different in a sort of a normal state where we weren't dealing with this situation. I think right now, we're having to make rapid judgments about how do we handle things in a non-normative situation. So if I had somebody that um, in normal life didn't have adequate video, I wouldn't see them in my practice. My practice is solely video. I would refer them to somebody who could see them in person. Right now, that's not an option for most people. And I think that that's going to continue to be the case for a few weeks or a few months. So we need to go back to who are our bosses, right? I think our gut check is one of one of the people that need to inform us. What are our personal morals about how we support other humans in our life? Our clinical judgment and what do we need to do to support this person in front of us? 
we also need to think about what does our ethics code say? And what parts of the ethics code are going to weigh out in this situation? Because sometimes they can be at odds. What does our state law say? And then, and I think that this is a really important point, many of you who are providing insurance-based services are going to run up against something here that you're going to want to check out directly with the insurance company that you're credentialed with, which is that many of them, uh, many of them actually do reimburse for telehealth, sometimes at different rates, but you want to first check, do they? And then if they do, are they going to cover something that's not video? And what we're seeing is that a lot of them are making accommodations, understanding that some clients aren't going to have access to video, and they are allowing phone sessions to be billed um, through insurance. So this is something that's going to be different with each insurance company that you work with, but that's another thing to be looking at. And the last one is that you want to make sure that your liability provider is covering telehealth for you. And exactly what does that entail? Does it mean simply video? Can it be phone? Does that include text messaging kinds of support? Make sure that you've covered the basis to ensure that you're providing the best clinical care and that all of the people who have some um, leverage or oversight of your practice are all on the same page. I appreciate you breaking that down. And you so you just differentiated the difference between video therapy, online therapy and telehealth when it comes to billing. So this is another thing that's very unusual for many of us. We're used to just billing an in-person code. Um, what are resources or how do we bill a video or telehealth based session when we're not accustomed to it? So this will make people very happy because it's quite easy to do the bill, right? So you're just going to change your location from, I think it's 11 for in-person to 02. 02 is telehealth. And then you're going to use the exact same CPT codes that you were using, and you're going to add a modifier. And the modifier is either going to be dash 95 or dash GT, as in Georgia Tech. So that's the only change that will happen in your billing to the insurance company, that two small things. And you can ask them which modifier that they're using. That's it. Okay. So to restate it, change the location code to telehealth, which would be 02, and then change the modifier to indicate that it was um, remotely delivered therapy service. Exactly. And there is a group on Facebook that I'd really recommend folks check out led by Kim Tolson. That's K-Y-M Tolson. And she is the telehealth insurance expert. She has really helpful videos about exactly how you can make sure that your insurance companies are covering telehealth, what questions to ask, the order in which to ask them. And then also she's keeping us up to date with all of the changes in policy with insurance companies during this time so that you know if there's been an exclusion to a previously held rule. Wonderful. Thank you. And um, to go back to policies and paperwork, I assume then if we're going to be changing our informed consent and working through an electronic health record, we need to be sending an update to our clients. Um, in some states, we're required to get a signature in that. On some, we're not. Um, but either way, we need to be covering it verbally and then documenting in our notes that we talked with them about some of the changes and limitations relating to doing online therapy. Is that right? Absolutely right. And if you think about the parts of your informed consent, honestly, you can make the changes in less than an hour. Just really think through, we're supposed to cover risks and benefits of therapy. We need to do the same with telehealth. So what are the risks of telehealth? What are the benefits of telehealth? We need to talk about confidentiality and security. So what are the changes when it comes to telehealth? What do we need to make sure is in that informed consent? And then something that I think many therapists will miss. And I just want to make this very, very clear. When you set up your informed consent, and if you're functioning as if you are a HIPAA compliant entity, you need to have a completely HIPAA compliant package of services available to your clients. They can choose because of the omnibus rule to opt in to less secure or non-compliant options, but they cannot be the base of what you're offering. And I'm going to give an example. So I use SquareUp for all of my billing. And SquareUp is HIPAA compliant. I have a BAA with them. So you can have a HIPAA compliant piece of software. But if you engage in a process that's not HIPAA compliant, then you've, you've voided out your security. And so when we think about that example, if I were to invoice my clients ahead of session, 
I am sending something to their email, which is a PHI, it's an identifier, and I'm sending something about therapy. So even though I'm not putting in a diagnosis or anything else, that qualifies as PHI, it's being sent electronically, which means it's not HIPAA compliant. So what I tell my clients is, I can not invoice you, or I could send it by mail. I could do any number of things, and I list those in my consent. I say many clients would prefer that I just invoice them via email or text message. That is not as secure. Here are the risks associated with that. If you would like to do that, I'm going to need your signature here to opt in to that non-secure version of communication. So it's an important differentiation between setting up a practice that is convenient, but maybe not HIPAA compliant in its processes and setting up a practice that has a capacity to be totally HIPAA compliant. And then for clients' preferred convenience has the opportunity for them to opt into less secure means. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, So today as we're recording this, it is St. Patrick's Day. It's Tuesday, March 17th. And I know I'm out in California. Things have changed drastically even in the last 72 hours. And I'm sure there are listeners all across the country and in fact, all across the world that have made really rapid changes that all of a sudden went, okay, we're going to do a video session. And they have none of these things in place that you just mentioned. What's your advice for those people? Because I imagine there's some people right now that their hearts have stopped beating where they're like, oh my God, I already did this for the last four days. What am I going to do? (laughs) Right. So there really is no HIPAA compliant checkbox, right? It's an aspiration. We are doing the best we can. So if you feel like, "Uh uh-oh, I have already made some mistakes here, you're just going to document that you listened to this podcast, that you noticed that things weren't in alignment with how they needed to be, and that you made some changes. And That is going to help cover you should anything come up. And I don't think it will because we are all just doing the very best that we can. The fact that you're listening to a podcast with CEUs around telehealth demonstrates that you're committed to providing the best possible care that you can for your clients during this period of time. So I know it sounds overwhelming, but really it's just get some video in place that's HIPAA compliant and secure. Have a way to get in touch with your client outside of that video so that you can either share paperwork or reminders about sessions. And then make sure that your paperwork covers kind of contingencies that might be a little bit different for telehealth than for your brick and mortar practice. Great. Thank you. So let's transition. What should a therapist check to make sure that they even can provide teletherapy and how they should provide it? Quick answer here is most of you can provide telehealth. Our professional ethics allow for it. You'll want to check your professional ethics to see if they have any caveats. And generally, the caveat is this. Either you need a little bit of extra training um, or you need to have explored if this is the best clinical option. So pretty softball, right? If you want to see specifically what your ethics say about telehealth, I do have shortcuts to those statements on a website that I'll provide to you um, that can be listed in the show notes so that you maybe don't have to go tramping around and reading through the whole bundle all over again. We can get you directly to the parts that you need. So you'll check your professional ethics. You will check your state law. And there's an app that will get you a shortcut to that that we'll also link to. You want to call your liability insurance and make sure that they cover telehealth. Many of them do now. So this is probably a given for most of you who are going with big companies, but just double check it. And then if they don't, don't stress because many of them do and you can just switch over. When I chose my telehealth, uh, when I chose my liability insurance, they turned it around in 24 hours. So it's a pretty fast um, experience. You'll want to check with any insurance companies that you are credentialed with to see if they cover telehealth, what the reimbursement is, and if they have anything in particular that they need for you to do to provide it. And then check in with your own clinical judgment. Does this seem like something that you feel comfortable enough and confident enough to provide? Um, One thing that you mentioned earlier was the discussion about the appropriateness of seeing a certain client via telemedicine or telehealth. Um, how do we handle that? Uh, what do we do in the event of a clinical emergency and how do we support clients in this really unusual situation? Yeah, I think that the first thing I would say is is reassuring. Just I want you to imagine what do you do when you're in session with somebody who you've determined is at risk for hurting themselves or someone else? You ask questions, you express empathy, 
you support them. You involve emergency contacts if they have them. And if needed, you facilitate them getting to an inpatient involuntary or voluntary hospitalization. We never um, assess our clients by palpating them. We don't need to touch them to find out if there's any risk there. And we're never going to tackle our clients to keep them from leaving our office, right? So because there's no touch involved in assessing risk or managing it, it's going to be very similar online. There are a couple of caveats. You want to make sure that you know the location that your client is in at the time of service. So um, some regulations ask that you get a copy of their driver's license um, to confirm their identity, which is kind of silly, but that's a requirement in some states. And we don't do that in our, our brick and mortar practices, but okay, that's where we are right now. And you want to make sure that you have their physical address. That's it. And I don't ask every time I'm with a client because I can tell by the background that they're in the same place that I've seen them each and every time. If they happen to be somewhere strange, like in their car outside of an office building and they don't know the address, they can simply hold their finger down on Google Maps and they can text you the address where they are at that moment. So you'll always have access to that information really seamlessly. So you want to make sure that you have their physical location. You, I really like to build into my informed consent a couple of emergency contacts and permission to get in touch with them even before it rises to a level of maybe having to break confidentiality. And I navigate that with each client individually. But my preference is that if I'm seeing somebody in a video session and they have a medical emergency or they appear to be and their mother is upstairs, that I could just call her so that she could facilitate their care. I also make sure that I know the nearest receiving facility for hospitalization in their area and importantly, know what the process is to get them hospitalized if need be. And that can be different per county. The one county that I lived in, we had a mobile crisis response unit. The next county over, we didn't. The process was entirely different. So you can look that information up before your first session and make sure that you have it handy if you really want to go over the top, you might even have them sign a release of information for that receiving facility so that you know, if somebody is higher risk and you think that this might be a potential, you want to make sure you have all your ducks in a row before that potential comes up so that you're not feeling anxious when you're trying to facilitate a really intense process for someone else. I like to have that release of information because once my client arrives at that treatment facility, they're no longer in imminent risk. I'm doing quotation marks. And so the facility may not even tell me that they've taken them in or that they have been um, completely admitted or that they're being released tomorrow or what the treatment plan is going to be. So if possible, I like to get a release up front. Um, but it's really the same kinds of things that you would do in person plus just a little bit to make sure that you understand that things might be different in the area where they are compared to where you are. That is very important guidance, everything that you just said. So having ideally a release in place, emergency contacts, and knowing the location of the client. I know from a clinical documentation standpoint, when we're doing telehealth, it's also important to make sure you document that in the note that client reports where they are um, or clients stated that they are currently at home, um, that that from a billing perspective is important for us to have in our notes as well. Um, so it sounds like when we're considering a clinical emergency, basically you're saying it's not that much different really than having somebody in your office, but the real difference is that we're not going to see the uh, emergency providers walk into our office and talk with somebody. So it's important for us to have a way to keep tabs on the client that's different than we would if we were in person with them. Absolutely. And don't rely on just calling 911. The process is different in every county. And if there's a way to get them assessed by a mental health provider instead of the police, I think the police would really appreciate it. And I think that they're largely going to get a better assessment and the process is going to go more smoothly. The last piece there is that if you happen to be a clinician whose license type does not allow you to initiate an involuntary hospitalization, I would make sure to have a backup clinician whose license type does allow them to do that so that you're able to facilitate care without worrying, you know, where has the client gone? I don't know if they've been moved into treatment or not, and they're just sort of floating out there, but you were the last clinician who had contact with them. Very, very interesting. I appreciate that guidance. So when it comes to 
normal circumstances. Um, you know, right now we're doing everything very rapidly because of the emergent situation. Um, do people need specialized training to be delivering telehealth? Do they need a certain certain certification? How does that work? The short answer is that yes, you do need some sort of specialized training. You're doing a novel thing and you don't know what you don't know. There are absolutely blind spots that I didn't feel prepared for when I started doing online therapy and only in the process of was like, huh, that would have been helpful to know earlier. Here's a funny example. I have my client's contact information in my EHR. That seems reasonable to me. It's safe. It's secure. It's HIPAA compliant. Um, my phone is through RingCentral, which is a voiceover IP, and it's HIPAA compliant. When the internet went out and I couldn't access my client via video because that's the internet, I also couldn't access my client via my phone because that was the internet, and I couldn't get to my electronic health records because that was also the internet. So small things like making sure that you have on paper your client's contact information, their date of birth, their emergency contacts, their physical location is really helpful and stuff that you just don't think of until you're in it or you've done some training. So short answer, absolutely. The sort of training that you need will depend and it will depend on at least four things. Um, your professional code of ethics is going to tell you what kind of training you might need. And in general, what they say is if you're doing something new, you need to demonstrate that you have had some training or some supervision and that you're competent in it. You don't usually get into nitty gritty about what that's going to look like, but those are the general things that most of our professional ethics bodies would say. The second place is your state law. Oftentimes, and I've read through a lot of state law, they will just say, refer to your ethics and do what they say. Occasionally, they will say something vague like, you'll need some training. And sometimes, though still very rarely, they will say you need a certain number of CEUs or you need a certification. And usually, if they're going to say something specific, it's going to be CEUs. And right now, You've got the opportunity to get that through this podcast, and there are other providers out there providing additional CEUs if you need more than what you would get here. The last two places to look um, are the insurance companies that you're credentialed with. Sometimes they will require you to have either a certain number of CEUs or a certain certification. And don't run around grabbing a bunch of certifications if you're worried about this with your insurance company. They usually have a particular one that they want you to do and occasionally even want you to use a particular platform with their clients. The last place is your liability insurance. Um, often it's a, you need to have two CEUs or something like that in order to prove that you have some competence here. Okay, thank you. That's All of that's very helpful. So you just broke down that ideally we're going to have some kind of specialized training. And I think many of us are operating under the assumption that we're we're in uncharted territory. So right now we work with what we have and as things start to settle down and we find some sense of normalcy in operating our practices this way and, and operating our businesses, then we can really focus on doing those additional trainings and, and checking those boxes to make sure that we're fully in compliance with all of these different expectations. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about kind of the, the practical side of this, like you need to have this kind of software and consider a BAA and what to do in emergency. Now let's talk about how we actually do therapy from a telehealth perspective for those of us that have never considered our practices this way? Well, first I want to let you know that telehealth is extremely effective. So there's lots of research out there to demonstrate that. And many therapists walk into this kind of reluctantly and may have some bias that telehealth isn't as good as in-person. So I'd encourage you to check that bias as much as you can, because remember that so much of what's effective about therapy is placebo. So the energy that you bring into those sessions may impact how your client receives them. So if you need to read some research on the efficacy of telehealth, or as I did, I did my own online therapy with my own therapist so I could experience it and see like, oh, wow, this is really potent. I think that's an important part of providing really strong services believe in it, and it's going to go a lot better. You also want to make sure, and this is kind of a practical tip, that you are making great eye contact with your client. And that does not mean staring into the camera. 
if you stare into the camera, it's going to look weird and you're going to miss a lot of the nonverbal cues that you would otherwise be getting from your client. So the way that I tell people to do this is, you know, when you have your video up, it could take the full screen. Don't do that. Shrink the video down to about two thirds the side of your screen, size of your screen, and then smush it right up under the camera. And if you look in their eyes in that video, it's going to look like you are looking in their eyes in real life. And I actually spend time in my free consultation and in the extended intake to make sure that we've got this right. And it is a feeling that you can you you feel it in your body when you've shifted to exactly right eye contact with them. And it's crucially important. It makes the difference between a great session and a really bad session. doesn't matter how empathic you are. If it looks like you're staring off into space, it's really hard for the mirror neurons and that other person to recognize empathy. So eye contact's super, super crucial. And I also think bringing a little bit of a sense of humor into the session is helpful. Letting them know, like, I always say this to my clients. I'm like, we're going to have some disruptions at some point. Like, that's just the way that things work. It's the way that the internet works. It's the way that tech works. But let me reassure you that when I was in my, my university job, we had fire alarms regularly where we had to actually leave the building or we would be able to hear the person in the next room crying. There are all sorts of distractions in every practice. And so occasionally the video might get glitchy or maybe we lose connection and we're just going to do some things to work around that. And I like to inform them up front, like these are the things that we'll do. It's no big deal. It'll be absolutely fine because they're probably bringing some anxiety into this novel experience as well. That is very important feedback. My my wheels are turning just thinking about what you just said. And I think the, the guidance for many listeners about making sure we're making eye contact with the camera is really important to focus on that rapport aspect of providing a clinical service. Um, when you're talking about bandwidth, I would assume then one of the considerations that we should have as providers, it may be time for us to upgrade our internet service then. Um, if we're used to operating on a certain level, can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. And I want to go back for just a moment. Do not look at the camera. Look at the video of your person and look at them in the eyes because that's what's going to make it look like you're looking at them. If you look at the camera, it's going to look funky. So with bandwidth, it's really nice because now we have such great internet that usually basic internet is going to be just fine. If you can plug your laptop into the Ethernet cable, even better, you're going to get a much more solid, consistent connection. But there are also small things that you should be doing to maximize the bandwidth that you already have. And I tell clients to do the exact same thing. I close out of everything on my computer other than the video. And that means with programs like Google Drive or Dropbox that are constantly syncing your files in the background, you actually want to put those on pause because them running in the background is going to steal some bandwidth. You also want to quit out of programs like FaceTime or Skype. It's not enough to click the red box to exit out of them. They will continue running in the background without you being aware of it, doing their own thing, and they're going to rob your bandwidth. So make sure you quit all the way out of those. And then, if you, and this might be difficult during this time because likely your kids are home, school's been canceled, but we want to eliminate other people using a lot of bandwidth too. So streaming Netflix or having your kids play those really heavy graphic games online, they're going to pull your bandwidth and we would prefer that they don't do that. Streaming Disney Plus. I know yeah. that's, that's going to be the one that many of us are like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's hard. You could always maybe put them on your phone on your, you know, if you did a hotspot and that way they wouldn't be on the same internet. I appreciate that guidance about the bandwidth and about internet. Um, so what are some other tips you have and how to do this um, as seamlessly as we can? Enjoy the process. I mean, you're getting to do something that maybe you wouldn't have considered before. You're going to find that your therapy is different, but in ways unexpected. So I, you know, you get to see your clients home. You get to meet their pets. Um, you get to see them in a setting that they feel much more comfortable in, more than likely, than your own office. And we know that environments create certain ways of being in people. So how fascinating to get to see your client now in their own environment. I also think about generalization. So they're learning what you're teaching them through therapy, likely in exactly the place that they're wanting to generalize those results. 
that's amazing. It's such a huge gift. I remember working with um, a client. I'm going to de-identify this a little. Um, and this person was going through a divorce and we had been meeting in some place in their home. I don't know where we were. And one day we were in a different place and I could see all of the pictures of their family on the wall behind them. And it had been, you know, over a year since the divorce. And it was absolutely heartbreaking to think of them walking by these pictures every single day. And it was a a clue into their life that I just wouldn't have known any other way, except that suddenly I saw this background to this person's existence. And when I and when we talked about it, it was such an, an important intervention because they too hadn't recognized the effect of walking by this every single day and how that was weighing them down. You're going to find so many opportunities to do cool things that maybe you hadn't thought of before, even grounding techniques for people with complex trauma or PTSD. I mean, I usually in office have lots of things to help people ground, but when they're on video, I I can't just shove those things through the video screen. So we are proactively thinking like, okay, so today we're going to get you a bowl of water and some ice. We're going to use that if we need to like pull you out of somewhere that's not a good place to be, or we're going to have your essential oils on your desk so that you're prepared to kind of ground through olfactory senses if needed. And it's so cool because it starts training them that you can be independent in creating these things for yourself. You can do it in your own environment. It doesn't only happen in the office where I'm providing it to you. It's been a really amazing experience providing therapy online. I'm absolutely in love with it. And I'm kind of excited, although it's terrible timing, but I'm excited that so many other practitioners are going to get exposed to what it can be like to meet your clients literally where they are. I really appreciate and and love the enthusiasm that you bring to this, because I think that's something that a lot of us haven't thought about. Um, For many of us, this has been such a stressful time, and we have so much fear about transitioning our practices. But you just highlighted that there are some things that might happen that will actually deepen the work that we're doing with our clients. Um, Tell me a little bit about setting the frame for doing online therapy and and how we manage our own intentionality. You mentioned closing out of windows to save bandwidth, but how about making sure we're doing those kind of things before a session as well to make sure that we're really doing our best work? There's so many things that you can do. This is a silly kind of practical one that I realized once I had made the mistake, so I'll just share it with you so that you don't have to. Um, I never restarted my computer. Just I just didn't. And in some session, we needed to turn everything off and turn it back on because, you know, that's the thing that fixes all the things. So I'm like, turn your computer off, turn it back on. I'll do the same. My computer took 15 minutes to start back up. So if you're one of those people like me that doesn't restart your computer regularly, you probably want to do that a few times before you start doing online therapy just to make sure that it's going to start up quickly if you need to do that in the middle of a session. I also had like 40 things that started up when my computer started up. So I need to turn all those things off. So it wasn't going to take forever if I needed to restart. Little silly things like that, that you will learn as you go. It's not going to be a tragedy if you don't think of it beforehand. But this is part of why it's important to have community because you can learn from other people's experiences and, and what they have had to do in session. That's a really good point. Um, and and also, I mean, I think there's this fear of becoming too informal, you know, that, that we could stop looking showered or that people might stop shaving their faces um, or that we might get a little bit lax and our boundaries might start to blur because many of us are going to be and already are doing this from home. So we're in our guest rooms or we're in a corner of our bedrooms. It's such an unusual situation. How do we make sure that we are keeping this space sacred and avoid falling into a trap where we are, um, I think, potentially threatening the integrity of the work because of the informality? Absolutely. And I think this is a very, very important thing to spend some time on. So this is a wonderful way to 
incorporate your standards of how you provide care in your informed consent. So I address this in my informed consent. I say, you know, it can be easy when we're working by video for it to feel similar to meeting with friends on FaceTime or Skype. And it's important that we remember, and I use the word sacred, that this is a really important and sacred time for you. And you want to take some steps to ensure your privacy to ensure that you're not going to be interrupted, um, and to make sure that you're in a mental space to take it seriously. So I'll normalize things like many clients will journal right before session or journal right after. Um, While it might feel nice to have a glass of wine during session or just before, just like an in-person therapy, that's not something that we would do. So we just talk about those things. I talk about them in the informed consent. I talk about them in the intake, and then we revisit them throughout sessions. So sometimes clients might, um, I, I have had this happen before, lay in bed with a laptop on their lap and you know they're talking to you. Well, on the one hand, it's great that they can be comfortable. On the other hand, all I can see is sort of up their nose and I'm not getting any of the nonverbal cues that I need to really be able to support them. And so you can kind of frame it in a helpful way, like, oh, I'm so glad that you're so comfortable. That's great that you're able to do therapy in, in like the comfort of your own home. I do need to see your face, though. <laughs> could we get you in a position where I could see your face um, clearly? Or somebody might be so used to talking on video with their friends or family that they decide in the middle of the session that they need to go to the bathroom and they just start to take you with them. So having those kinds, this has happened, having those kinds of conversations about like, you know, this is a, this is a sacred place. Let's, let's leave me in the therapy room and you can go excuse yourself for a few minutes if you need to, and then come back and we'll resume. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, (laughs) That's a very good point. Um, So one of my questions, and I've seen a lot of people asking this question recently on social media, what about when we are considering group and family therapy, and we're not just talking about one-on-one therapy, how does that change this equation in the delivery of online therapy? Mm -hmm. It does make it more complicated. So in terms of software, you're going to need software that allows multiple participants in the video and Zoom is your your best bet with that. Most of the other software won't allow for multiple people to show up in the meeting room. Um, Particularly if it's a couple, you might be able to see them sitting on the couch side by side. But if you've got more than two people, so a family or a group therapy session, you're going to need video software that allows a Brady Bunch sort of situation where you can see everybody on the screen at the same time. The other part that I think is a little bit tricky to navigate is that you'll notice when you're talking on the phone or talking on video, when one person starts to speak, it turns the video, it turns the volume off on everybody else. So in normal conversation with a family or in a group, people talk over each other all the time. That's just sort of the the way that we engage as humans. But in video, it's going to turn off the other person's mic and it becomes very difficult to hear. So you might need to set some standards like, okay, so if you need to interrupt, you know, raise your hand so that people can see that. And there are actually parts of the Zoom software that you can click a button to raise a uh, a fake hand up so that people can actually see that you're trying to jump in there. There's also the fact that there's a chat feature in these softwares. It's along the side. And when I host webinars, sometimes people are chatting it up in the in the chat section and also chatting it up in the video section. It's impossible to keep up with both. So you'll want to set some standards about like, you know, don't go to chat. We need to be talking here face to face in the video, just like we wouldn't pass notes during a group therapy session. We're not going to use that feature during online group therapy sessions. The last thing that I have some concerns about with group therapy in particular, when we get into video sessions with our clients one-on-one, we're engaging in a contract that neither of us are going to record what's going on in that room. And it's easier to have trust between two people than it is to have trust between 12 people. So just like when we're doing group therapy in person and you have that conversation of like, I can guarantee that I will keep what you say confidential. You all need to make a contract with each other that you will keep it private and confidential. And it's going to be the same thing online. And you're going to have to have a conversation about, and that means no recording of the meetings. 
Most HIPAA compliant video software does not allow for recording. However, there are all sorts of programs people can use to record their screen or something like that, that adds another layer of risk that you want to make sure to think through. Those are very good points. Um, When we're thinking about, let's say, a family of four, so if they, let's pretend that those members have separate computers, how do you go about doing that? Do you recommend, I mean, do you recommend that they get in separate rooms so there isn't an echo or are they each at a desk in a line and everybody has a computer in front of them? Like, how do you do that? (laughs) Yeah, separate rooms is going to be better. Um, because you are going to get some echo effect. Everybody needs to have earphones. Um, You can imagine if you have two people on the same computer, them splitting the earphones, and you would actually, I know this sounds complicated, but it would be so intuitive if you were doing it. If they're splitting earphones so they can both hear, you actually will want the mic turned on on the laptop, not on the earbuds, because otherwise you're not going to pick up both of their voices. So many of these things you just figure out as you go. And these are the kinds of questions that I think really hold people up from trying it. So knowing that we're in this crisis state right now, being able to say to your clients, it's a beautiful time to own your non-expertise. Like, listen, guys, this is the first time that I'm doing this too. We're going to figure it out together. Some weird hiccups might come up. We will sort it out. Then it sets you up that like, well, we're, we're going to do this together and you don't have to bring perfection to the table. And I have had clients that are far more tech savvy than I am introduce ideas to me that I had not considered before. So you might also run into that. Um, another thing that I've heard and even have had the experience myself already in these last few days, um, engaging certain clients feels like it's more challenging over video. Um, for example, if we're working with an adolescent that tends to those one word answers, how are you doing? Fine which like do they don't know. Um, what guidance do you have? I, I had this realization of I need to have worksheets and I need to email these ahead of time. Um, what other recommendations do you have to help us work with those clients in those situations that if we're sitting in the room with them, it feels a little bit different, a little more organic. But when they're sitting in their bedroom, they're just kind of staring at the wall. How do we address that? Uh Uh-huh. Great questions and really fun workarounds that you can do. So there are features in Zoom, and I know I'm harping on Zoom, but I'm pretty in love with them right now. Features that make it so easy to be more engaging. There's actually a whiteboard. So the two of you can draw together. So if you have somebody that's having a hard time expressing themselves, you can draw diagrams, or I do a lot of diagramming for trauma work, and I can draw it out for them. They can draw at the same time. They can save it so that they can use it later. So you can literally write out the worksheet while you're working with them, or you could write out a safety plan just like you would in person on a piece of paper. You can also share your screen. So I might ask them like, okay, let's talk to me about music. What's what's the favorite your favorite song right now? Let's let's see if we can riff off of that for a while. And I can pull up YouTube, share the screen, we can listen to the song. I will often have them chatting notes back and forth with me in the HIPAA compliant chat feature of the video so that I'm like, so like is it this part that's really resonating with me or like this really reminds me of you and we can chat about it as we're going. There are also ways that you can do um, journaling and bring that into the therapy room. So if They've written a really great journal piece, and they're not not the type to really want to read it out loud. You're thinking, well, how am I going to get it? They can share their screen, and you can read it out loud with them. I mean, there are a million workarounds. They're just so novel that it doesn't occur to us. Today, Amber, you have covered so much helpful information. We've talked about software, hardware, different state laws, um, clinical considerations relating to emergencies, how to actually do this in practice. I know you run a Facebook group about online therapy that offers a lot of resources. Um, please tell us how we can get in touch with you, how we can access some of these resources. As you said, we at Clearly Clinical will be linking to them on the landing page for this particular course. But why don't you talk a little bit about what out there to support people during this transition time. Absolutely. I'd really encourage you to join our group. It's the online therapist group. And we have an amazing supportive community and lots and lots of resources in there for you. Online therapist group on Facebook. You can just type it into the search bar. The other place I'd like you to go is my website, which is Amber Lida, A-M-B-E-R-L-Y-D as in dog, A.com. And you'll see a link there for quick start. I have a video doing a training about how to get started quickly. 
a lot of it we've covered here in probably even more detail. But if you scroll down, it's got everything broken up by bullet points. So if your brain is spinning right now, you can go there and get grounded in, okay, these are the steps that I need to take. These are the answers that I need to have. And I've included a list of all of our uh, major professional bodies and what they are saying about telehealth right now and what they are saying about COVID-19. So that if you need kind of a one-stop shop, we're getting as much information in there as we can. And there's also a contact form. So if you have follow-up questions, you can get in touch with me. Perfect. This has been unbelievably helpful. I mean, we've talked about so many topics. I know I feel better and and I'm one of those people that's transitioning from a brick and mortar practice now to doing online. Amber, thank you again. Um, I can't thank you enough on behalf of Clearly Clinical for joining us today and sharing uh, your expertise and also just some of your experiences. Thank you. Thank you for letting me help out. Um, to our listeners, best of luck to you during this very unusual time. And we will continue doing our best connecting you with resources that can help you navigate the situation. Take care. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.